This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. New highways are a huge priority for the Ford government, as we've been discussing, and that was very clear in last week's mini-budget. And in addition to the very controversial Highway 413 that we've been talking about for a long time, there are plans to develop the Bradford Bypass that is to link Highway 400 and Highway 404. The cost of this, as we've been saying, entirely covered by Ontario taxpayers. And Ford also made it clear that this stretch of highway would not be tolled when it's expected to open in 2024. So all of this has environmentalists up in arms, as well as others who say these projects won't do much to relieve congestion. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome Mike Schreiner, leader of the Green Party of Ontario, and Dr. Frank Clayton, a senior research fellow with the Centre for Urban Research and Land Development at Ryerson University. Thank you both for being with us. Well, let us begin with Mike Schreiner and uh, tell us why you oppose these, both of these. Well, first of all, we've had 75 years of history now that shows that when you build more highways, it just supercharges sprawl, which ends up leading to more gridlock and increasing climate pollution. The largest source of climate pollution in Ontario comes from transportation. And the more we sprawl out development and force people to have to drive an hour to work or to find an affordable place to live, we're just increasing climate pollution and putting stress on the environment. Um, You know what? We pave over wetlands. We pave over farmland. That's the food that the land that feeds us. Those are wetlands that clean our drinking water, protect us from flooding. It's completely unsustainable, the route the Ford government is going. Okay, Frank Clayton, you like these projects. Well, first of all, let's remember that the Ford government is spending billions of dollars on transit as well as roads. They're doing both. So it's not just one or the other. Uh, the growth of the greater Golden Horseshoe, the greater Toronto area, is phenomenal. It's expected over the next 40 years. Transit can't handle all the growth. But it can only handle about one quarter of the trips, according to uh, Metro Lakes. Three-quarters of the rush hour trips in 2041 will still be by cars, despite all the transit investment going on. If we don't expand the road with the, to accommodate the growth, like 100,000 people a year, a town, a city the size of Kingston added to the greater Toronto area every year, you've got to have some, you've got to have some road capacity. There's cars, and you also have to have transit. You need both. It's not one or the other. But uh- what's going on right now is under, with all the transit investment being made, and even if you put this money on the billions of roads in the transit. All you would do is maintain the, the existing modal split, as we call it, between transit and, and roads uh, by the year 2041. In other words, you're not switching anybody from one road to the other. 
Uh, Mike Schreiner, what do you say to that? I mean, you said people being forced to uh, to drive, but people are moving. I mean, the housing costs in Toronto are, are just out of sight, and people are moving further and further away. Well, Libby, I would say let's build livable, affordable, connected communities where people don't have to drive an hour just to be able to find an affordable place to, to live. And we have lots of opportunities for gentle density, triplexes, quadplexes, duplexes, uh, laneway housing, tiny homes, secondary suites, uh, mid-rise uh, multi-unit developments. There's a whole host of affordable alternatives. The bottom line is, is we're losing 175 acres of farmland every day in Ontario. That's the equivalent of five-family farms every week. We simply can't afford to continue to lose that much farmland and be able to be food secure, feed ourselves, not to mention the 870,000 people who work in the food and farming sector, the $50 billion it creates for the province's GDP. It's simply not sustainable to continue to have sprawl development in the highways that facilitate it. Frank Clayton, uh, according to Mike Schreiner, uh, the bypass, for instance, would pump almost 87 million kilos of greenhouse gases into the air each year. I- is it worth it? Uh, you got to look at all the objectives. One of the objectives is affordable housing. Another objective is accommodate growth and ha- have commutes as, as, as short as possible. Uh, we need forty to 45,000 housing units a year in the greater Toronto area just to accommodate growth. 45,000. You can't do it through the ways he's talking about. You need some new housing. And the growth plan is a very balanced document. 50% of all new housing has to be built up in the built up urban areas, and the other 50% has to meet certain density requirements. So the growth plan is, is trying to have a balance between housing affordability, what people really want, and what the environmentalists want, which is not often what the people really want. Right. But my question was, is it worth the pollution and the destruction of farmland, in your opinion? Well, we don't know. Okay, first of all, yes, you're going to have to destruct to use up some farmland. But secondly, as far as emissions are concerned, we have no idea what things are going to look like 30, 40 years from now. We've got goals for electric cars. We might have hydrogen cars. We might have autonomous vehicles. We just don't know what they're going to be, but we know there's going to be cars and you need roads. So the, the emissions can be reduced through other means, but not through not having roads. You need roads, as well as you need transit. You need both. Mike, your response? Well, once you pave over farmland, you lose it forever. Once you pave over wetlands, you lose it forever. We've lost over 75% of the wetlands in southern Ontario already. Those wetlands are vital to cleaning our drinking water, protecting us from flooding. That's why we're having these events like, you know, August of 2018 in Toronto, three hours of rain caused $80 million worth of flood damage. Those types of events are going to continue to become more frequent as the climate crisis accelerates. We can't keep paving over the Earth's ability to protect us. It just isn't sustainable. And on the climate front, yes, of course we want to electrify electric vehicles. I mean, I'm, I'm calling you for my electric vehicle right now, but the bottom line is is that we have to start building livable, affordable, connected communities. We can't keep sprawling out, which is what's leading to most of the climate pollution in Ontario, which is coming from transportation, while at the same time threatening our wetlands and our farmland. It just isn't sustainable.
Frank Clayton, one of the things that I hear over and over again from all kinds of people, they say, we don't need 413 because 407 is underused. It's underused for because it's too expensive. Uh, and another thing I heard about this is that the owners of 407 don't want to make any kind of accommodation for truck traffic because it wears out the highway. So do you think it, it would be possible to find some mechanism to uh, allow people to use the 407 more? Uh-oh. Who's that? Who did we lose? Uh, we lost Frank. Okay. Um, well, Mike Schreiner, then I put the question to you. Yeah, well, you know what? So you raise a great point. I mean, and numerous people have said, let's look at alternatives. I mean, if you think about it, we built the 401 to relieve congestion in the GTA. It led to more congestion. Then we built the 407 which is being underutilized, and we said, hey, that would relieve congestion. We have more congestion. So now they're saying build the 413. Well, let's look at alternatives, Libby. One of those alternatives is let's have a dedicated truck lane on the 407 so we can better utilize um, existing highway infrastructure rather than build a new highway 413 that, you know, some estimates are it's going to cost $10 billion. My gosh, $10 billion invested in health care, education, um, you know, better transit. I mean, there's so many better ways we could spend that money rather than paving over 2,000 acres of farmland and unleashing sprawl on some of the best farmland uh, in North America. Uh, Frank Clayton, I'm glad we have you back. Yeah, sorry um, about that. And I don't know if you heard my last question. Uh, no, so, I didn't. I didn't. so I will repeat it. And what I'm hearing from a lot of people is that they're saying we don't need 413 because 407 is underused and shouldn't the government make some kind of arrangement it's underused because it's too expensive uh, that would allow trucks and people to use it more and and the other thing i've heard in terms of 407 is that the owners don't really want to accommodate trucks because uh that um starts to ruin the highway well, at the MTO open house that I attended, that they were as MTO representatives were asked that question, uh, and they said that even if they had the 407 as a resident, you know, as a more capacity, uh, using more of their capacity, they would still need 413. And I can't, you know, I have not looked at the detailed study, so I can't comment on that. But for, for, um, 407 is a private road that the government sold, which they maybe shouldn't have done, but it would cost, you know, probably 20 to $40 billion to buy that back. And that's, you could build a lot of other roads for that price. Uh, so so that's, not, that's not the route to go. People use, the, people use the 407 because they want to go fast. They want to get from one destination to another fast. Uh, if, they, if that was just a regular 401, it would be packed and it would be very slow, just like the 401 is. And that's, so people have a choice right now. They can either use the 401, the Highway 7, or they can use the 407 and pay. Okay, let us take a call from Murray and Malton. Hello, Murray. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Go ahead. Great. Uh, I don't see the, the big problem with the Bradford Bypass. Uh, I've checked the map, and I grew up up there. Right? So uh, most, a good half of that proposed land will be residential in the next 10 to 20 years anyway especially through Queensville. They're already building out towards where that highway is going to go to. Okay. Murray, thanks for that. 
Um, Mike Schreiner, I mean, uh, what do you say to, I mean, basically the argument is it's inevitable. Uh, We have many thousands more people coming, so we've got to do it. Well, I mean, my response to that would be, you know, do you want to protect Lake Simcoe or not? Um, The Bradford Bypass impacts 17 hectares of the Holland Mars, 39 hectares of wildlife, 11 hectares of provincially significant wetland, wetland that's are vital to protecting us from flooding, cleaning our drinking water, help protecting Lake Simcoe. Think of all the road salt uh, runoff and other runoff uh, from the highway. And we have to, at some point, say, you know, are we going to protect these vital sources of drinking water and recreation and and economic value, such as Lake Simcoe or not? And and I would say, you know what, let's protect it, because once you destroy it, it's gone forever. I'm going to ask you a, a political question. I mean, you know, when we see surveys, they say that people are now caring more about the environment. But uh, when it comes to that or gridlock, you know, what's your take on on where that concern is at? Well, I, I certainly understand people's concerns about gridlock. I mean, it's you know, the worst gridlock in North America in, in the GTA, but. We have 75 years of history now that shows that when you build more highways, you create more gridlock. And so I guess the definition of insanity is keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So let's build better transit. Let's build more livable, connected, affordable communities. Let's get back to mixed-use communities where people can live, work, shop, support local businesses um, you know, near where they live so they don't have to commute so long and be stuck in gridlock for you know, a few hours every day. You know, uh, people are working from home in the pandemic, and a lot of people have moved out of the city because of that. I mean, Mike, do you see that as uh, a long-term trend that may alleviate all of this? Well, it certainly can help, though I, I think most people would probably say, yeah, I'd like a few days of you going to work at home, but I want to go into an office or a workplace as well because you want that interaction with colleagues. But we can certainly um, create opportunities where people's offices, workplace, factories, construction sites, what have you, are in the same location uh, where they live. Um, you know, the days of building out you know, sprawl um, just isn't affordable. I mean, think of all the infrastructure that goes into it. You know, the water pipes, the gas lines, the sewer lines, the roads, the transit. You have to, from, I think, a financial and an economic and an environmental perspective, start utilizing land more efficiently, which can lead to uh, better quality of life for people. Uh, Frank Clayton, do you think that the trend to working at home will will have a significant impact on, on all of this? It'll go the other way. Working at home means people want a single detached house far, far from the downtown where they can afford it. And they'll be having so-called sprawl, which I don't call sprawl. I call low-density development. But the one thing to keep in mind is we have a growth plan for the Greater Gold Horseshoe. It came into effect with the Liberals in 2006. And it's also still in effect with the conservative, part, you know, the progressive conservative party. That plan goes in the direction of what Mike's talking about. But you can't do it overnight. And you have to remember that we are growing 100,000 people a year in the region. It's not a static region. So you've got to have different things happening at the same time. Yes, we want to grow up in the build-up areas. But we also have to grow out. 
and we're going up at least 50% of all the new housing is going to be built in the build-up areas, in apartments. A lot of people don't want apartments. They want something low density. That's going to be basically on the greenfield lands or the farmlands. Mike, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds. Uh, do you think that there will be any way to stop these plans? Well, I think uh, in, in many cases, particularly the 413, so many citizens, so many local councils are speaking out against it. When I first spoke out against the 413, a lot of local municipalities said, oh, you're never going to stop this. But now most of them have actually passed resolutions against it because they recognize how important it is to protect that farmland and those wetlands. Okay. You were even came in under the 20 seconds, and I thank you for that. Mike Schreiner, the head of the Green Party of Ontario, and Dr. Frank Clayton, thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay, and that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Just when the numbers on the pandemic were looking good and we were all starting to relax and resume some of the activities we have missed for nearly two years, wouldn't you know it? Peter Uni, the scientific director of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table, says we're in the fourth wave. And he's looking at the lifting of restrictions at sports venues and restaurants as the reason. Uh, Dr. Uni joins me now. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me again. Sorry to be, how do you call that in English, a, a boss kill? A buzz kill, yes. A yeah. buzz kill, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Weren't we expecting an increase in cases as the winter sets in? Oh, yeah. So, you know, we knew that. We had we have even done some analysis in the past that were published that, uh, that have shown that um, the extent of mobility and contacts that you can afford changes over time depending on how the weather is and how the temperatures are. It's all a function of whether we're inside or outside. Now, the virus loves being inside, transmit inside. So if we move more indoors with, uh, you know, mid-October, the temperatures drop by eight degrees or so, this will contribute. And that's the point here. You know, it's a contribution of, it's a contribution of several factors. The point here is just, okay, let's not wait forever. We need to be aware of, we probably need to adapt fine-tune a little bit our response so that our case numbers are, you know, uh, constant again in a few weeks from now and linger around 1,000 and don't continue to grow. Uh, Dr. Uni, I know that you are not on social media, but there's a fairly vocal group there. I would call them dissenting doctors. And what they're saying is that the problem is that you have measures to counter a droplet spread virus, and this one is airborne. Oh, uh, for sure, you know, the, the transmission that happens, um, and I've always been outspoken since uh, summer 2020, and the transmission that happens um, uh, out there in the community goes is, is, is airborne, it goes through the air, for sure. And uh, the point is, we have, that's also why we actually just are much better when people are outside as compared to inside. And what we can do is, Basically, if we talk about, you know, uh, capacity limits in restaurants, for example, if we basically have some capacity limits because we physically distance the tables, this means there's less people in the restaurant 
and the ventilation relative to the crowding in the restaurant is much better. No? And, and uh, it's always a combination of behavior, masks, ventilation, and vaccination. That's where, what we can do. And by the way, if you want to have a little bit more of a, of a background, the latest the slide deck that we have on our website is exactly looking into, you know, ventilation. That's something that we also looked into in detail when we talked about schools. So what would you recommend? Do you want, you know, uh, the capacity limits are off at restaurants and sports venues. Do you want them back on? What do you think? Well, we'll see. I think this might be a local decision or perhaps later on also a provincial one will find out. It's certainly one way to deal with it. First of all, just uh, um, make sure that the measures we have are, you know, implemented stringently. For instance, what I heard is that, you know, people let slip uh, the checks for with uh, regarding uh, vaccine certificates a bit, which is unfortunate. This shouldn't happen. Uh, we can get much better regarding masks. Um, for instance, in uh, sports arenas, etc., there's uh, I think that's quite a big challenge. And and then in addition, if we um, struggle, continue to struggle, then we might need to reconsider some of the capacity limits because if you decrease capacity again a bit in restaurants, this means that uh, the space is better ventilated relative to the amount of people you have in your restaurant, as an example. Okay. Um, uh, anything you want to leave us with? Well, you know, don't panic. Just uh, try. We, we just should try to find a strategy that uh, gets this thing again under control. What is important to realize is we get a lot of control out of actually quite a few measures that will not really impede our societal freedom. So if we do a little bit of the right thing, then we should be good again, but we can't ignore the situation we're in. Okay. Dr. Peter Uni, thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay, another break. And uh, then we are going to talk some more about those highways that are on the table here when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel, and we begin with the Conservative Party ahead of the next sitting of Parliament. Excuse me. They still seem to be mired in the vaccine controversy, which many insiders believe cost them dearly in the last election because Aaron O'Toole was wishy-washy. Last week, a former leadership hopeful, Marilyn Gladue, formed her own mini-caucus, apparently to discuss, and I say that with air quotes, Vaccines and vaccine mandates. O'Toole finally seemed to take anti-vaxxers on yesterday, I think. And also there is talk in Ottawa of a literal liberal NDP agreement to prop up the minority government. Those involved say it's not happening, but is it? And as you heard in Jeremy's News, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland has waded into Quebec language politics. So what do you think? 416 360 toll-free 
866-740-4740. Now I'd like to welcome Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hello, Libby. Hey, everybody. Uh, let's begin with uh, Karen. Uh, what do you think of the goings on in the Conservative Party? Uh, they still seem to be fighting over vaccines, and it's overshadowing everything. Oh, there's no, there's no question about it. They are. I don't know. They're acting like a bunch of little kids, to be honest, and uh, they don't realize that there's quite a lot at stake here, and there's no winning the anti-vax argument. There is just, there is no winning it. And at some point, I think Aaron O'Toole is just going to have to say, listen, guys, if that's, if you feel so strongly, if that's the hill that you choose to die on, then you need to go over there and do that. But you, you can't be part of a uh, important opposition holding the government to task at a critical time in our recovery and hold us back. They're basically holding back the Conservatives from being able to do the job that they've been elected to do as a party. And something's got to give. And I, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for Aaron O'Toole as he's trying to navigate through this, because the last thing he wants is the Conservative Party blowing up. But the reality is, if he doesn't get a hold of this issue and tackle it to the ground soon, it is going to prevent him from doing the job that he has to do. But yeah, but how could he afford to get rid of them? There's a lot of them. There is a lot of them, and it's really, a, 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 to be honest with you, it's a bit of a come-to-Jesus moment. Like, guys, do you want to sit here and squabble like a bunch of kids, or do you want to come and try to lead, lead me in this part, the development of this party? Because they are quickly becoming irrelevant, and they may matter to their constituents, and, you know, good, good for them, they need to do that, but for the rest of the country, they are becoming a sideshow. Yeah, I mean, some of it was really mind-boggling. You know, Marilyn Gladue saying that that uh, it, COVID isn't as bad as polio when it killed a lot more people a lot more quickly. I mean, it's just historically wrong. Uh, John, um, Aaron O'Toole did just uh, minutes ago unveil his shadow cabinet. So uh, he is leaving out those people. Leslin Lewis is one of them. I mean, she seemed to be so promising, but she She's into this. Marilyn, glad you out of the shadow cabinet. And he is restoring his former rival, uh, who I think is an actual rival, Pierre Polyevre, as the party's finance critic. Well, you know, the saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, uh, Mm -hmm. certainly plays plays into the role here. But no, I listen, Pierre Polyevre has always been a huge fighter uh, for the conservative cause, especially in finance. I was quite frankly displeased when he had, when he had moved them out of finance uh, prior to the election. I thought Pierre was one of the, one of the most uh, you know, active uh, and engaged uh, opposition members and quite frankly effective. And, and it is, it's no joke that when he got up to speak or ask a question or, or you know, in a committee, I think the Liberals really were shaking in their boots because they don't, you don't know what they were coming from. And some of, the, some of the stuff that he did actually garnered a lot of very positive press in some way. So I'm and a frequent contributor on this show, I might add. <laughs> well, even, even better. But no, um, I, would, I would say that uh, I'm glad to have him back. But with respect to Leslie Lewis and, and Marilyn Glado, quite frankly, I don't think they, they should be in the shadow cabinet. So I, I'm quite supportive to move on, on that. I think for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, if they're fundamentally going to disagree with the leader, 
with respect to uh, to vaccines, then, then then they shouldn't be in a shadow cabinet because that's going to that's that's part of the of the the, the brain trust of, of the of the government or of the opposition. So, and the other thing too, quite frankly, Libby, is this: if they're not prepared to answer the question whether or not they're vaccinated or not, and there's some in the caucuses we know uh, are either not saying that they're vaccinated or aren't vaccinated, then they shouldn't be shadow cabinet ministers because you need those shadow cabinet ministers to be in the legislature, in the House of Commons, asking questions of the opposition. So, you know, if they're not prepared to, that's yet another ramification for those who decide not to be not to be vaccinated. That is not to go into the House of Commons, and you can't be on the shadow cabinet list. So I would imagine that factored into his decision quite uh, prominently as well. Uh, and we have a newcomer uh, from our area, Melissa Lansman, who is a former strategist. So she's the transport critic. And uh, the former leader, Andrew Scheer, infrastructure, that, <laughs> that's not a very uh, sassy or sexy portfolio. Well, let me just say this, I, and, and I know Melissa Lancer, I've known her for, for many, many years, and I'm so proud of her and, and the fact that she won uh, and uh, won decisively in, in Thornhill, you know, replacing, of course, another amazing person by the name of Peter Kent. Uh, so good for for Aaron and recognizing that she is an up-and-comer and having transportation is a really good portfolio for Melissa, and I think she'll do well there. And Andrew Shear, look, infrastructure is going to be important. As you know, Libby, infrastructure is probably the most sought-after portfolio, uh, either, either if, if you're in government or outside of government, because it's going to be talked about. There's a lot of infrastructure money that's going to be spent around both provincially, the provinces, and of course, federally. So it's not a bad portfolio to have. Okay, well, uh, Charles, uh, does uh, the way this adds up uh, mean that they are going to be effective or not effective? Well, they're not being effective at this moment. Um, certainly, Pierre and Michelle are are very outspoken. They also have a lot of misinformation. And there's a lot of misinformation around this issue with regards to the efficacy of this vaccine and why politicians are engaging in that discussion is mind-blowing. And uh, if they take lessons from Ford, take one lesson, and that is come to your senses, as he has done here in Ontario, and ensure people are vaccinated. Now, I am concerned about one thing, one thing that they did say that I'm actually in agreement with, and that's the legitimacy of some exceptions. And if the vaccine passport could at least entitle those with special exceptions not to have footnotes in their vaccine passport, that would be appropriate. That way it doesn't impede upon their privacy issues. But otherwise, herd immunity is not going to happen until we all take steps. And uh, your hospitals are still being inundated, and, and politicians have to lead by example. And I think, Aaron, I feel for Aaron O'Toole. He wants to. He really does, I believe, want to do this. He just has a huge group that he has to rely on, and it's going to be tough, and I'm disappointed by it, by their actions. Okay. What do you think, Karen? Let's move right along. Uh, all this talk about a formal agreement between the NDP and the Liberals, all the denials, what do you think? Well, I mean, yeah, whether they have a formal agreement or not, the agreement lasts as long as it's advantageous for the NDP. (laughs) So whether it's formal or not, everybody knows that the only way the Liberals are going to keep governing is with the support of the NDP. And uh, so, you know, again, I thought that uh, Jagmeet Singh had power last time around. He has way more power this time around. And uh, he's going to use it. And... uh, and I think he's going to use it very strategically. How, how so? I mean, if, if there's anything that the last election proved is that the people do not want an election. They, they don't want an election, and none of the parties want an election. But the reality is the only way to avoid it is by 
the NDP and Liberals working together. And, and, and by and large, their agendas align, because I think the Liberals have been moving to the left. And re- with respect to the child care, climate change agenda, Indigenous reconciliation, I think there is actually a lot of overlap. So those, those, that file, those files should be able to move ahead. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't think, I think whether it's a formal agreement or informal agreement, they, that's the way it's going to be. And as long as it benefits the NDP, that's the way it's going to stay. Well, at least they uh, got out of the flag quagmire, but no thanks yeah. to the government. That was the... No. Uh, that, that was uh, the... Well, and that's the hard part, right? Is it, honestly, like, I just, it just doesn't feel like the Liberals are leading. And it, it, they've won the election. They have a minority government. I know that they have to, you know, at least show some deference to Parliament and to their minority status. But it is just so frustrating to see a government that just can't seem to be ahead of an issue. Yeah, I mean, it was the Assembly of First Nations that <laughs> that was the sensible one. Yeah, um, and, and, and to their credit, thank goodness, you know, and the Legion saying, "Well, how are we going to deal with with Remembrance Day, which was a right. legitimate issue?" And so, finally, to your point, and they <laughs> had their own ideas the before this was solved. The Legion right. said, "We're all doing it our way." Way, all the adults in the room figured it out. Yep. Yeah. Um, Charles, so um, did, did that uh, harm the liberal brand, this whole brouhaha? Oh, yeah. And I, I think uh, it just shows, you know, the, I don't know if you call it inexperience, um, but I can't understand why we wouldn't have been ahead of on, uh, on those very issues. I don't believe there is a formal coalition to the point Karen made. There's, these discussions have to be had regardless, and they would have been the case. But I, I do disagree I, I, with Karen on one point. I think they do have uh, strength and more leverage than they had before in respect to their ongoing activities going forward because there is no appetite for an election. And frankly, there is no appetite really for a coalition uh, on either side. So they have to work together, and they may work with the block on certain issues. They'll work with fine common ground with other parties uh, when it comes to certain issues. But on the most part, I think I think they have uh, more wind in their sails than they did before. And uh, what do you think, Charles, of Christian Freeland wading into the debate of Quebec? She said that the 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 CEO of Air Canada, who uh, proudly speaks no French after living in Montreal for fourteen years, she said uh, that should be part of his performance review. Yeah. Well, I mean, Air Canada together is subject to the Officials Language Act. But it begs the question, how many CEOs of the respective banks are fluent? How, is the governor general fluent? And She's learning, it, at least. Yeah, no, and it's important to, to have it. I, I don't disagree, because that, that is, is, is part of who we are as Canadians. But I worry about imposing upon the skill sets of the board, where we want you know, certain diversity, certain skills to do the job, and certain ability to speak, obviously, in, in, in our official languages, but to speak in both. Um, I, I sit on a board where we have a translator because some of our, our directors who are Canadian uh, have a difficulty with English and in French, and, um, and, and then we have a translator because they speak Chinese. But in any event, it too is a Sked One bank. Uh, and so, you know, I appreciate the encouragement to do these things, and I think it's necessary and appropriate that these federal uh, companies, especially those that were former government agencies, be bilingual. Um, to the extent that the CEO needs to do so, he should set by example. Well, I mean, you know, especially if you're, if you're headquartered in Montreal, hello, 
Yeah. I mean, really. And, and uh, you know, the other thing I, I don't understand is normally you have someone who is uh, fluent in French or francophone, you know, write a few lines in French. If some people are tone deaf enough that they can't read it on their own, you practice with somebody to read uh, a few lines of the speech in French so you don't get criticized. He got slammed more so because of his Q&A afterwards. Yeah, he said, I don't need French. I I practiced my French when I was delivering a speech, and I put my lines in there, and I did what I could. But when it came to Q&As, and I was in Ottawa, and they were coming at me in French languages, I tried to respond in French, and I fell into Portuguese. So it's a difficult (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) No, that's that's right. But he he said, "I've, I've lived in Montreal for 14 years, and I don't speak French. He didn't even say, you know, it is it is a source of huge pain. No, he could have qualified it a bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean it's uh, yeah. It, it, I mean the the whole thing, but but again, the you know what is Christian Freeland doing in there, John? Well, you know it is a it is a significant issue. I think that you know especially because Air Canada is an iconic Canadian company and then it's headquartered in Quebec. And I I've always maintained that if you're gonna, if you're a company. Uh, and you're headquartered, it doesn't matter which province, any province, all provinces have some distinct value, distinct value that they bring to this this wonderful confederation. And, you know, you've got to be able to adapt to the surroundings of where you are. So if you're in Atlantic Canada or if you're in the West, uh, and if you're in Quebec in particular, knowing that language, and especially now with uh, with the Premier uh, and, and some of the issues that are that are swirling around legislation with respect to languages, you would you would think that being the CEO of a Canadian company like Air Canada, you would know that at least be honest or at least be forthright. Right? This is an unforced error uh, of, yeah. of a huge proportion. And that is, you know, just say, look, I am absolutely learning French. Uh, I'm, I'm taking lessons. You know, people, Quebecers, media and, and business folks would actually be much more sympathetic to somebody who said, hey, I'm learning it. I'm trying to do what I can. I know I've lived here for a long time, but but I'm going to be focusing on it. We've had leaders like Joe Clark and Preston Manning, you know, who have got into Quebec and have done debates knowing that they were going to get, you know, severely um, you know, slaughtered in debates with their limited French, but French Quebecers appreciated that they tried and that they believed that there was an honest attempt that they were going to learn. And that's what this uh, this CEO, I think, and you mentioned the word tone death, I thought was, uh, and it's causing problems for Canada, where quite frankly, this shouldn't be a time that they should be handling this kind of a challenge. Yeah. yeah. See, I have a very different point of view on it. Uh, go ahead. I, I just, I... You know, I hear this this man. It was never a job. It was never a requirement in his job description. He has. Um, the re- I, I think the reason it stings a little bit is the comments that he made is because it's true. You, you can live in Montreal and not speak French, and I think it speaks to you know again the Quebec Quebecois, the Bloc Quebecois, why they might want to strengthen language in Quebec and in Montreal. But he you didn't know what? Say anything that's not true, Karen. I I think that there was a time when certainly you could live in Quebec and not speak French. I don't really think it's true, unless maybe you are the CEO of a very large corporation making a fortune and having a lot of people help you through everything. Because literally in the bad old days, yeah, you, if you were English, if you were Anglo, you didn't have to speak French. I mean, I come from Montreal. Well, and I, But I think that's part of what the issue is really revolving around, because if, if, if it if, if if what he said didn't have an element of truth, I don't think everybody would have reacted the way that they reacted. And 
the other reality is the guy's not a politician. <laughs> Apparently not. not. <laughs> right? He's not. And he was never hired to be a politician. He was hired to run Air Canada. And the last two years, he's managed things and issues that no other airplane executive has ever had to even remotely deal with. And so I kind of felt, to be honest with you, I'm like, whether, you know, he, he clearly could have managed the situation a little better than he did. There's no question about that. But here a guy, here's a guy talking about how an investment in Air Canada is a good investment, and all of a sudden he gets tripped up because he doesn't speak French, and he never said he, he never pretended that he could anyway. And so, and then for the federal finance minister to get in, and I'm like, Jesus, pardon my language, but like, who, who on earth determines the job requirement? Is it like the federal government, if you don't have a vaccine, you can't have your job. If you don't speak French, you can't have your job. <laughs> like, it, it does become a little bit worrisome. And... That I understand it's a federally regulated industry and that, Air, that the government is now a major shareholder of Air Canada because of circumstances. But, but I, I do think that um, aside from the fact that it's unfortunate that he doesn't speak French, I'm sure he wishes. I don't know if he does or not. You know, he might wish I'm he sure spoke French. sure he does French. now. But but I, I think that there was a bit of a rush to a reaction, and I, I think he ended up bearing the brunt of... And, and being this lightning rod for a lot of issues that are swirling around that really have nothing to do with him, that he ended up being a magnet for. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's always a big issue. I mean, you know, uh, who was it that mentioned the the governor general? Well, she's indigenous. She said, I am learning French, and that she was prevented from studying French as a child because of right. residential schools. And there were still thousands of complaints because of that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. There you go. Um, moving along to the provincial government, speaking of an election. So we had a mini budget last week and uh, it, highways, highways, highways. There <laughs> <laughs> might be a little tone deafness there. I don't know. <laughs> What's the ACDC song? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm 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 hearkening to subway, subway, subways. That 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 was Rob Ford's battle cry. Um, is is that going to do it, John? Well, I think you know. I, I, I think it's a smart play. I, I, obviously, it's something that the premier has been focused on. And, and by the way, this is a, this is a premier who's always been very supportive, not only when he was a councillor, uh, and also now as premier about subways. And I think that the, the two of them aren't mutually ex- mutually exclusive. But I do think, though, it does take courage for someone to to you know want to do something that he knows is not going to get built you know until way after his term is probably over. Uh, and I think that's always been a huge hindrance for politicians to do these infrastructure projects like subways and others because you know it's it's ten fifteen years forward uh, and they're not going to be around to sort of reap the benefits of it. But I do think that the decision has to be made based on our population demographic uh, uh, counts that show that we're going to be having continuing influx of, of people coming into the GTA. And if you don't build them now, when people are starting to move into this place, it's going to be too late when they actually already move into this, uh, into Ontario and into the, into the region. So I think it's supportive. I think he said he's not going to make it into a tolled road, which is probably good for, for that perspective. But I, I think it's needed and it's going to be something that's going to be well well uh, received by the mayors and, and certainly some residents of the areas. Okay, uh, Charles, um, Stephen Del Duca, the Liberal leader, your former colleague, former transport minister, uh, you know, one thing I found him very credible on when he was criticizing this, and this is on 413, not the bypass, it was when, when he said, hey, people, um, you know, don't believe any of those numbers. It's going to cost a lot more than that. 
Yeah, and it will. Um, listen, I'm a huge proponent and supporter of, of transit development, especially public transit. And there's a number of projects that we were con- contemplating, certainly the Pearson Transit Hub. It is a bypass for the GTA freight, um, certainly subways and, and other things of that sort, and rapid transit. We had a lot of debate about the highway to the Ring of Fire in the far north to bring in the Aboriginal communities and others into an all-season road access to develop our economic activity through, through mineral sources and chromite and so forth in the far north. So there's a lot of things on the table. But the, the issue with this 413 and the, and the bypass is the proximity to the 407. And the problem is we have a highway that's rarely used because it's expensive. And so we do have an alternative. We do have an answer to some degree. We have an alternative by which to support uh, some of the, the, the development north of the green belt, which is what, what he's doing. He's providing, and I guess this is the part that people complain about, it's, he's working for the people, but it just seems to be some people. And that's <laughs> yeah. the question that people are, are, are questioning, and it's the ties he has to developers. But actually, I support these developments. I think it's important, but I don't think we need to pave over very critical, environmentally sensitive land when we have the 407 that's not being utilized to its full extent. And and Charles, do you think it's possible to make some arrangements, I don't know, subsidizing it, uh, you know, maybe buying more of it? Canada Pension Plan owns 51% um, to to make that uh, more accessible. Well, I, I, I wish I knew the answer, Libby. I mean, 413 to be, or, or the bypass to be fully paid by um, the taxpayers, you're going to have people squawking from other parts of the region saying, well, what about us? Why aren't we doing the far north? Why aren't we doing some of these other things where we can bring in some economic uh, activity? But it's important. And uh, I don't know what the answer is to the 407. I mean, it was sold without protection. It went, it, they let it go 100% without any subjects to control, controlling price increases. And they sold it for $3 billion, and they make a billion a year. I mean, it was... It, I'm glad the pension company owns a portion of it now. Because, <laughs> you know, Canadians get to benefit from it. Yeah. Uh, Karen, what's your view of this? Well, you know, again, I, I don't, um, I'm not as familiar with the politics of the local area that's going to benefit from this. But uh, it just seems to be low on the priority list for the provincial, like the critical spending needs that are confronting the province on an infrastructure perspective. And, and also, you know, I think that we really are moving to a place where uh, road pricing is a legitimate discussion to have, not only on new highways, but our existing highways. So to come out of the gate and say it won't be told, I, I think is curious. Um, and then also why this is, you know, it's important because there's an election, of course, but, but really how does it rank relative to the other spending commitments that he's made, that the province has made, you know, relative to the public transit uh, investments that they've talked about, the Ontario line, some of the other public transit uh, announcements and it, it just it just it, it again it has the feeling of politics whether or not it is or not I don't know but it doesn't it doesn't stack up against the other projects that have have been funding has been allocated to and say how does it fit within these priorities and so it does as I say it, that 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 from my perspective makes me wonder whether this is simply just a campaign stop. Okay, and uh, I think it's time to start wrapping things up and going around, beginning with John. What would you like to leave us with? 
I just want to say that the last comments from Karen were amazing because she was the, the best t- spoken like the best TTC chair that cities ever had, <laughs> <laughs> and a proponent of public transit. <laughs> um, no, look, I think that you know it's going to be interesting to see because we're 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 getting close to the House of Commons coming back into session. Um, you know, we've had the ministers uh, uh, in the cabinet shuffle. We've had the, the shadow cabinet now uh, announced. I'm sure that Jack Singh will announce his. Um, but we're weeks away from the parliament coming back, and I think it's going to be important to see what the throne speech is going to say, and more importantly, how this government is going to uh, team up with the Liberals, with the NDP and, and cause us to spend more money than we need to in this country. <laughs> Charles, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I, my vote's with Karen as well. Um, and uh, please, join and get, get into politics, get back in, do something to lead this country, because I worry about the politics in the equation. And the problem with governing is politics in many respects, and these election cycles uh, makes things uh, too difficult. And to John's point, these are long-term decisions that are being made, and we should look at them as such. Um, I'm hopeful that uh, the federal government will get its act together and start making some initiatives to facilitate what is important for our economic recovery. And, you know, when it comes to provincial activities, well, you know, put your seatbelts on. (laughs) <laughs> okay, Karen, <laughs> uh, tough act to follow. Last I word to you. Tough act to follow. Oh. Uh, next thing I want to go first. No, I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see as the borders opening and the uh, that the car traffic is moving back and forth, and the whole uh, question around what what tests are required to come back into the country if you're fully vaccinated and have only been gone for a short period of time. Um, I look forward to those getting resolved, and I, and I hope that they do because I I think that we can bring a little bit more. Um, a reasonable approach to, to how that cross-border traffic is going to be managed. Okay, thank you so much to our crack strategy panel, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thanks Libby. Bye. Bye. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, the uh, chief of the province's science advisory table says we're in the fourth wave. Not good news. We'll talk to Dr. Peter Uni when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.